You are listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at www.riversideconnect.org. Well, good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to see you all here. Let me welcome those of you listening by podcast. Thank you so much for your giving today. And we're going to turn our hearts to God's word because at the end of the message, we're going to dunk some people. We're going to drench some people. We're going to baptize some people. And I'm so excited about it. Who else is excited with me about that? I'm just, I can't wait. It's going on in both services. So let me just let me just welcome on behalf of myself and the rest of our team, as Michael did, those of you specifically that are here to support those that are being baptized. We're honored to be able to have this time together with you. Uh, we hope that you ins- sense the love and the excitement that we have for Jesus here, and certainly you will as we celebrate those who get into the tank. And as for those of you who are here for the last several weeks, we told you week after week that this was coming, and you say, oh, I should have signed up. As I have told you every week, we will have clothes. We do have clothes for you. So at any point along the way this morning, if you're feeling like, you know what? Today is my day. I'm going to get into the tank. Denise Burek is back here in the back and she will help you. We have sizes of all uh, shapes and sizes there for you. We've got towels. Um, No one will judge you for walking out with wet hair. You'll be fine. Okay. Uh, If they do come see me afterwards and I'll get that taken care of, but it's it's just going to be fantastic. All right. So I want to invite you to turn with me in Mark's gospel. We're going to be in Mark chapter 8 this morning. And if you need a Bible, if you're one who likes a paper Bible, there should be some in the chairs below you there. If you have no idea where the gospel of Mark is, use your table of contents, use your digital Bible. You can uh, download the Riverside app and follow along in the notes. And we'll put, we'll put verses and stuff up on the screens, but it's a great way for you to be able to remember what it is that we've studied today. And so again, for those of you who are brand new today, Let me just bring you up to speed with where we're at because you're kind of coming in at the end of a series. It's part five of a series that we began, but it's actually part of a larger uh, series of series, and it's also part of a larger theme. So this year at Riverside, we've set aside from September through this August to focus in on what it means to be fully alive. And that comes out of a verse that Jesus spoke in the first century where he said that he had come not not just to give us any kind of a life, but to actually give us a life and life to the fullest. And so we've been talking about as followers of Jesus. And I acknowledge that there are probably several of you here in this room who are, you know what? I don't know yet if I've actually experienced what it means to live fully alive. I don't know if I've ever embraced Jesus at that level. Maybe you've been a churchgoer. Maybe uh, you've been, you know, that kind of a person who maybe had a bad experience when you were a kid in a church environment and you haven't been in years and years. And today may be your first time back or you're kind of just investigating and exploring. You need to know that we actually believe that Jesus has a life that is full for you. And we're going to talk about that throughout the rest of our time together today. But in this specific series, what we've been looking at in the gospel of Mark, there were four accounts of a life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as I told you in our very first week together, when we began this series, Mark writes on behalf of the apostle Peter, one of the closest folks to Jesus, and he writes from his perspective to a Roman audience in the first century. Groups of people who were trying to follow Jesus, who wanted to know about Jesus, and they didn't have the B-I-B-L-E like we have. They just had some parchments. They had some letters. They had some documents that could try to kind of help them. So Mark writes to this church in Rome, and he's trying to help them see who Jesus is. And so throughout this specific 
months of January through till Easter weekend, we've been looking at how a person who is a fully, a fully alive person in Christ is first called, then they become convinced, then they're changed, and then they're committed. And so we follow Jesus through that. And so this specific series, we've been looking at what it means to be fully convinced. Because sometimes you start to follow Jesus and maybe you still have a lot of questions. In fact, I've been following him for 48 years and I still have a lot of questions. And so it's not a matter of you have to have all your answers to be able to begin to follow Jesus, but you can begin to follow him. And as you do, he's gonna help you. He's gonna help convince you of all that he said that he was and is. And so today in Mark chapter eight, we come to the pinnacle of Mark's gospel. This is at like the, top, the hot topic moment for Jesus and for his disciples. Now, as we begin to think about this today, I wanna to begin with a very simple question, and that is simply, what is life's most important question? Think about that just while you're seated there for a moment. If you're listening on podcasts, think about that. Maybe hit pause and think for a moment. What is life's most important question? How would you answer that? Just give that some thought for just a moment. I wrote down a list of some questions that might be in the top of that, of that idea of where should I live? Who should I marry? What should I name my child? What career should I pursue? Where should I work? Here's one, what funds should I invest in? Which college should I attend? Which car should I buy? Should I buy a, a PC or a Mac? And God has spoken, it is a Mac. Okay, sorry, <clears throat> digress. Uh, when, I'm, when I'm standing at, in line and it's time to order, should I order a Coke or a Pepsi? How many are ordering the Coke? How many are ordering the Pepsi? How many of you don't even like pop, right? Yeah, soda, wherever you call it, okay. Should I register as a Democrat or as a Republican? Which church should I join? Which small group should I be a part of? And then, just to show you my age, the question, the age-old question that racked me as I was growing up with like, I just had to know, and I just had so many opportunities over the years to try to figure out what the answer to this was. And for those of you who were born in my generation, you know the question that I'm asking. You'll be familiar with the question that I'm asking, and it's simply this. How many licks does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Bop? Who else? Yes, you know what I'm talking about. If you're younger than me, go Google it. You'll see it all over the place, all right? Very important question. And what was the answer? It was three. Yes, the wise old Al gave us the answer. I was so relieved. But I actually could never get there in three, but I digress. So in today's text that we're going to look at in Mark chapter 8, Jesus asks what I believe to actually be the most important question. And as important as the question is, really, it's the answer that's actually of most concern to us today. And it was almost a year ago. In fact, it was Friday morning, March the 29th of 2019, that myself and my daughter and a group of us from Riverside, along with many others that were a part of this touring group, we're standing in Caesarea Philippi to study this very question and to look at the very answer. And so today for me is show and tell. Do you remember the old days of show and tell? 
when you were growing up. Did anybody else have those? Yes, I had those in classrooms. So today I want to take, and I put some in your digital notes there you can take a look at, but I want to just put you in the context. I want to invite you into the scene of Caesarea Philippi where this conversation is going to have. And you'll see there on the screen the map. It's about 25 miles north. It's about a two-day walk from where Jesus was when he headed to Caesarea Philippi with his disciples. It's about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee in the foothills of Mount Hermon. And I want to show you just a brief video from that day that I took myself that'll just give you a little bit of context. So can we put that up on the screen? You can see what it looks like right there around Caesarea Philippi and the ruins that are there. And uh, you can see there that it's a rainy, cold day there, which was still not as cold as it was here, but uh, it was chilly that day and it was wet. And you can see there as you go throughout numerous images that kind of give you a little bit of context for Caesarea Philippi. And again, it's 25 miles north. It was near the source of the Jordan River. It comes all the way down into the Sea of Galilee. Its earliest uh, worship centered on the Canaanite god of Baal. It, earlier, though, it wasn't called Caesarea Philippi at the beginning. Earlier, it was called Peneus in honor of the ancient pagan Greek nature god that goes by Pan. You can look that up online if you want. And Herod the Great, he built a temple for worshiping Caesar Tiberius there. But that wasn't the end of it. Herod's son, Philip, actually expanded the city and he renamed it Caesarea in the emperor's honor. Its citizens were primarily Greek and Roman, very little Jewish population, if any, at all, and they participated in imperial worship. In other words, in Caesarea Philippi, their calling out was Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord, among all of the other gods and goddesses that they worshiped. And so Jesus withdraws from the area that everyone knew him from where all the Jews were. He withdraws from that place and he goes to have a private conversation with his disciples. And as they are there, they interact with this question that again is the pinnacle of Mark 8 because if you don't get this right, you don't get anything else right. And you end up floundering in a spiritual sense, trying to find wholeness, trying to find a full life and never feeling like you've arrived, never feeling like that emptiness that you're longing for deep down inside could truly be satisfied. And so what I've done today is I've invited Mike Wolf, one of our board members who's typically in our Oakmont campus, to come and to read the text for us. He's gonna read a couple of different texts and you'll see the, all the ruins there that Mike and I and others that were here in the crowd today uh, walked on that day. And there's a picture, we'll show the picture here. That day, one of the things that we did every time we went into a, a, a ruin area or just any of the sites there in Israel, we read the biblical texts. And so I was reviewing that this week and I had that moment when I remembered that Mike, that day, March the 29th of 19, he stood there in the rain and he read this very text. And I remember just tears flowing out of my eyes that day because I could not have pictured what that moment was like. But as you look at that stuff and as you put yourself in the story today, I wanna invite you to experience God's word in a fresh new way. So would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's word? Mark, uh, Mike's gonna come and he's gonna read verses 27 through 29 of Mark chapter 8. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say 
still others in one of the properties. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Who do you? It's a very emphatic word in the original language. Who do you say that I am? Some would have said that he was an enemy. Some would have said that he was a celebrity. But that didn't matter in this moment. Who do you say I am? The most important question. And Peter answers it and gives the most important answer. So Father, would you open our hearts and our minds to what you have for us in these next few moments I pray, Father, for anyone here that would cross the line of faith, that would answer this question today, perhaps for the first time, that might need to be baptized. I pray for those that will be baptized, that you'll bless the remaining moments that we have together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, before you're seated, one other very important question in life, and you're gonna look at your neighbor, and you're gonna say one word, cat or dog, go, okay? (laughs) You have to choose. You can't, you can't pick both. No, you gotta choose. So Jesus is in this area there of Caesarea Philippi. And you see, you guys used a whole bunch more words than just one. I just said cat or dog. So he says to his most intimate, close friends, who do you, my trusted friends, in contrast to the other people who don't know me or don't understand me, who do you say that I am? And again, Peter gives the most important answer. Four words that followers of Jesus have been answering with since this moment. Four words that give us focus and that we filter every decision, every interaction, every behavior, every word that we say should be influenced by this answer the most important answer, you are the Christ. Or you're the Messiah. For the Jews, he was the Messiah. For us in the Greek, the Greek equivalent is the Christ. It means anointed one. It carries with it the idea of chosenness by God, consecration for his service, and an endowment with power to accomplish the task that was assigned to Jesus. And Peter answers it, and it's the culmination of this series, Convinced, because Peter is completely convinced in that moment of who Jesus was. And to this point, actually interestingly in Mark's gospel, to this point, only God the Father and the demons had spoken to the identity of Jesus. At the baptism of Jesus, the Father says from heaven, this is my son, with whom I am well pleased. And the demons on several different occasions as we've been seeing throughout our texts week after week, and you may not even believe in that level of evil in this world or demonic activity, but let me just say Jesus did, and he operated in that, and they would be the ones to always call out who he was, and he kept telling them, shush, shut up, don't don't tell who I am. But now, Peter says it, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're the son of a living God. And he, in his mind, as he says and speaks to Jesus' identity, he has in his mind, this is the one that's gonna liberate us. This is the one that's gonna get us out of our oppression as a people, by military force, by insurrection, or however, this is the guy that's gonna help us. And then, interestingly enough, I wanted to include, because this was so important the day that we were there, and it's so important to this story, 
we're gonna jump over to Matthew chapter 16 and Mike's gonna come and he's gonna read that text as well because it has so much to do with what we're talking here. But it's very interesting that Mark doesn't include this. He left this part out about Peter who was the closest disciple there to Jesus. Interesting that he leaves him out of this story, Mark's account written to a Roman audience, the church in Rome, because I think the church was never intended to be founded on anyone else other than Jesus. And Mark didn't see Peter as the first great leader of Rome. He saw him as just one of Jesus' disciples. And what Matthew tells us from his perspective is that we're convinced today. So Peter's convinced, but he says, hey, we're convinced today as the Father reveals Jesus to us and the Holy Spirit draws us to Jesus. That's how he describes this interaction between Jesus and Peter, that day that Peter answers. So follow along as Mike reads here in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. But this was not revealed to you by my Father in heaven. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Whatever you lose on will be losing. Thank you, Mike. So there they have this conversation. And Peter makes this great confession there to Jesus. And Jesus says, Hey, this happened by a revelation by my Father in heaven. And he says, Peter, I'm going to build my church. And it wasn't until centuries later that church was kind of redefined by some translators, unfortunately, that made it more like a building. But when you read the word church, Jesus is not using any kind of a word that speaks to a building. He's talking about a movement a gathering, an assembly, a group of people. And what Jesus is saying there that day is that, Peter, on your confession that I am the Christ, that I am the Son of God, that I am the Messiah, on that confession, I'll build my movement. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And then he says, hey, I'm gonna give you the leadership and the authority. I'm gonna give you the keys so to speak. It's a metaphor in the first century language there that Jesus is saying, hey, you're going to have leadership along with the disciples. You guys are going to be calling the first century shots under my direction. In fact, he says, whatever you bind on earth, that, that word for bound and, and bind there means to prohibit. So whatever you prohibit on earth, I'll, I'll have already prohibited it in heaven. And whatever you loose or whatever uh, you allow here on this earth, you're going to be in direct alignment with what's going on here. And in the middle of all of this, he says, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. My friends, we take that and we think about the spiritual aspect of, of Hades or hell. Hades refers to the realm of the, uh, of the dead. It was a very uh, familiar ancient expression there. It's, an un, it's the underworld. But that day that Jesus said that, and that day that we read that text together, we were actually standing at the alcove of a cave. And you can see that in the notes and we'll put it up on the screen. And my friends, the, the tour guide told us over and over again that that is the place where the people there in Caesarea believed the, were the gates 
of Hades, that they would sacrifice things and they'd throw that into the water and the rock that was right there, Jesus was saying, I'm not building my movement on that kind of a rock or on this stuff here. You see all this, all this stuff that's here, all of these temples and all of these Romans God, Roman gods and goddesses. He said, no, 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 they're all going away. Nothing will stop my movement. And I stood there 332 days ago today with tears running down my face to realize that I had heard the good news of Jesus and that the gates of Hades had not prevailed in 2,000 years and that I could still hear the message and that you could still hear the message. And in 2000, if Jesus doesn't return before them, his movement, his assembly, his gathering, his people will still be moving forward. Yeah, that's exciting. So, as amazing as this moment was, it doesn't last very long. Peter can't help himself. He's gonna stick his foot in his mouth. He got it right. He's convinced. But what he was convinced about was a different version of the Messiah, of the Christ, than what Jesus actually had come to be. Up until now, the question in Mark's gospel has been, who is he? Well, now we have the revelation. Now we know. So now the question changes to what kind of Messiah is he? And what does it mean to follow him? And so then in beginning back in Mark, Jesus answers that question, that unspoken question. And in verse 31, Jesus is going to use a term that shows up 14 different times in Mark's gospel. It's how Jesus refers to himself. Jesus never goes around. You know, when he goes into the restaurant and asks for a table, he says, hey, you know, Messiah here. Uh, need a spot. He doesn't use Messiah. He doesn't use Christ. He doesn't use any of those kinds of things. He always refers to himself as the son of man. 14 times there, you'll see it throughout. In fact, that is borrowed from Old Testament Hebrew scripture language, primarily from Daniel chapter seven, which the people were looking for in the first century, but they weren't looking for it exactly like what Jesus is gonna bring it. You'll see that terminology, son of man, show up in the book of Psalms and Ezekiel and 600 years earlier in Daniel chapter seven. And that son of man terminology represents that God's people are their suffering when Daniel's using that prophetic word, when Ezekiel's using those prophetic terms to refer to the son of man that was coming into the future, the people are in slavery, they're in captivity, they've fallen again to the hands of the Babylonians and the Assyrians, and they just can't seem to keep free. They're in these, the clutches, so to speak, of these pagan enemies. And he's saying here to his disciples, hey guys, the son of man represents the suffering that's going to come. I'll eventually be vindicated but not until after the suffering. And as God sets up his kingdom in the last days, there will come a point where you're going to be following me into that suffering. That's how I understand my role, Jesus was saying to them in this moment. And there's so much more uh, that we could talk about with regard to Son of Man. I included a link for you to be able to go and learn more about it on your own time. Otherwise, we'd be here till five or six tonight. So just thank me for that. You can click on that link and go watch that later. But let me get into Mark chapter eight, verse 31. He began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And after three days, rise again. Notice the two times there. He says he must suffer. He must be killed. It was not an option. He was not surprised by the outcome of his death. 
He knew it was coming and he was in control. No one took his life from him. He was always calling the shots. And he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never a good day when you're rebuking God. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And the word there is the exact same word. It's a very aggressive word for when Jesus is silencing the demons. And this is what he says. Get behind me, Satan, or get behind me, adversary. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You know, and I read that and I thought, you know, here I am 2,000 years later, and I get who Jesus is, but I still feel like many times I'm more concerned about my own human issues, my own human concerns, than I am about the concerns of God. And I just wanted to point out, this really isn't, this is kind of a little bit of a, of a you know, rabbit trail for me, but I just wanted to invite you that if you're sitting there today and you're thinking more and more and more about all the human concerns that are facing you, that are weighing in around you, maybe you just needed to be reminded today that he's still the Christ, he's still the Messiah, he's still on the throne, and no matter what it is that you're facing, even if it's going through suffering, he knows it, he's been there, he's beaten it, and he'll be with you in it and through it, and he's inviting you to shift your, your concern so much on, your, on the things of this life, and maybe perhaps moving a little bit closer to the things that are of most concern to him. Back to the story, sorry. So he says... The son of man must suffer, must be rejected, will be killed. And then he's rising again. And it's as if we get into this next verse in verse 34. It's as if Jesus is saying, you know what? Only when we're deeply convinced at the core of who we are that to live fully alive, we must acknowledge our weaknesses and our sinfulness. We've got to step into the death of our sinful nature and embrace the love and the forgiveness, the grace and the mercy of our heavenly father. It's in that that we begin to experience the freedom and the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit that this next part, that's a really difficult challenge for us sometimes, becomes really activated. Notice what he says. Jesus does not back down from the high calling of what it means to be fully alive. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. They must deny themselves. In other words, you take yourself off the throne and you put God at the center of your life. I'm off the throne. God, you may have center stage. That's what it means to deny yourself. It means a whole bunch more, but real simply today, it's like, hey, who's gonna be on the throne of your soul, on the throne of your life, and determine your choices and your destiny. When I'm there, it's a mess. But when he's here, it's a fully alive life. He says, you're gonna take up your cross. That's the price. There is a cost to following Jesus. It means the daily death of our self-centeredness and our self-fulfilling desires and all of the stuff that comes with self and you must follow me. Then he lists this paradox, and the Christian life is full of these kinds of paradoxes. Here's what Jesus says. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. He says, if you want to save your life, if you're all about self-preservation, 
you're gonna end up losing it. But if you'll settle the matter for me right now about me, notice what he says. They lose their life for me and for the gospel. What that means is, is that we, we, we lose our lives in him, meaning for his life. But then also for the gospel means the good news about his death and his resurrection. That's all wrapped up there. That results in what Jesus' language is, salvation. You'll save it. So to follow Jesus means that we surrender to him. We identify with him in his suffering and in his death, and we obey him wherever he leads us, no matter where he leads us. And we do this for him, and we do it for the sake of others. It puts on display that we're fully alive. That's the picture of what it means to be fully alive, what Jesus just described there. And he has just told them that all of this gates of Hades will not prevail it. All that you see of this Roman empire. No, I'm not coming with an insurrection. No, I'm not coming with military might and power. I'm coming to be king now and I'll come back and I'll be king again someday in a whole new way. I love what N.T. Wright has describing this. He says, he says this, he's a pastor and um, theologian. He says, following Jesus is Mark's definition of what being a Christian means. And Jesus is not leading us on a pleasant afternoon hike. And that's maybe a version of Christianity that you've bought into. It'll be health, wealth, prosperity, ease, and comfort. Instead, he's, walking us, he's inviting us into a walk into danger and risk. Or did we suppose that the kingdom of God would mean merely a few minor adjustments in our ordinary lives? It's so much more. You want to save your life? You lose your life. You lose your life, you'll save your life. So, who do you say that Jesus is? Because your answer to that has eternal significance, both now and forever. It's going to determine everything in your life, both in the temporal and in the eternal. And baptism is a picture of the death of our sinful selves and a newness of life in Jesus. It puts on display this idea that we're buried with Christ under the water and we're raised to a new life in Christ. And today, of all days, it is a reminder that the gates of Hades have not prevailed against Jesus or against his movement and people are still being transformed and that evil in this world ultimately loses. So let's celebrate with some folks who want to get baptized. Can we do that? <laughs> Worship team, come on up. So now's your chance. I'm going to ask everybody to bow their heads, close their eyes and pray. If you need to slip out and go get some clothes from Denise, you go ahead and do that. We're going to worship and we're going to celebrate and we are going to baptize. I think we have two in this service and five right now in the next service. So let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for these words that you've left recorded for us. Lord, we all have to answer that question for ourselves. Who do we say that you are? So would you grant us the faith to believe in our hearts that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Christ? Would you give us the capacity to confess him as Lord and receive the free gift of salvation? Lord, we want to surrender to your plans and your purposes 
We wanna identify with you in your suffering. Lord, we struggle to obey, but we want to obey deep down inside. So would you grant us, Holy Spirit, the strength, the conviction, the courage to obey you wholeheartedly and to live a life that's fully devoted. Thank you for listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at www.riversideconnect.org.